you like to do? It's still the cross. It's been a few weeks now since our last time in our study in Genesis, so we're going back to that here this evening, this series that is tracing our way through the, the lifetime of Isaac. You may recall that this section of Genesis, even though it's tracing the life of Isaac, the, the largest roles are really played by the sons of Isaac, Jacob and, and Esau. They play a much larger role in the, the section that deals with Isaac's life than Isaac himself. Still, we've seen so far that it's been clear that God's passed his promises on from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac is a man who's been blessed by God. We've observed that God has promised to, to pass these same promises on down to Jacob rather than Esau. Remember, of the twins, Jacob was the second child. He was not the first. He was not the eldest. But the promises were to go to Jacob. We, we should remember from the beginning that there's been tension in this family of Isaac's. That the twins struggled with one another from birth onward. Uh, even though Esau was the older, Jacob was that child of promise. And, and a lot of internal tension came forth in the family. It, it came to a head in the last chapter we looked at last um, few weeks back now. Chapter 27 and the very beginning of 28. Even though God had promised that, that Jacob would be the, the recipients of the promises, Isaac... The father planned to give those promises to Esau, his favored son. Rather than trust God, Rebekah, Isaac's wife, schemed along with Jacob how to acquire the blessing through deceit. Well, the plan worked, if you remember. Jacob got the blessing from Isaac, but it was through a very deceitful message or method. And in the end, we saw Jacob having to leave the family unit, flee for his life, because Esau was so mad that he wanted to murder his own brother. That's where we left off a few weeks back. Now, we don't have any record in Scripture of the emotional state that Jacob might have been in as, as he fled from his family. We do know he's leaving his family behind, and he's leaving quickly as probably safe to assume that this would not be one of the, the high points in Jacob's life. If you just think about leaving your family with your brother trying to, to kill you, it, it seems to me like he wouldn't be overly excited at this time. He's heading to a place where he doesn't know anyone. He, he's hoping to find a favorable reception when he gets there. He has no idea when he might return, if ever return. He has no idea how long his brother will want his life. So we can make some assumptions that emotionally he might be down, but that's not where Scripture goes. We don't know his emotional state, but we do know his spiritual state. Scripture informs us of his spiritual state. To this point in Jacob's life, there has been zero indication that Jacob personally knows or fears God. We've seen him, as I mentioned, take advantage of his brother. Began with taking advantage to get the birthright through that pot of stew, we, we saw him deceive his father with outright lies to acquire the blessing. We, we saw Jacob even blaspheme God as he invoked God's name in support of the lies they was telling his father. To this point, we have not observed a single honorable or godly behavior in the man that, that God has graciously chosen to carry the great promises that he gave to Jacob's grandfather into the next generation. We haven't seen anything honorable here. Jacob might be depressed. We can speculate about that. 
we do not need to speculate that Jacob definitely requires spiritual transformation. He needs a work of God in his life. God needs to transform him so that he can fulfill the, the purpose that, that God is calling him to fulfill. Spiritual transformation. That is something that we all need. As we work our way through the text this evening, I want us to keep that truth in mind. We need spiritual transformation ourselves. Where can we go to acquire it? The lesson that we can look for is, as we consider what happens to Jacob this evening is that only God's revelation of himself can transform a person into a true worshiper of him. Jacob needs God to reveal himself. We need God to reveal himself. Only God's revelation, only as God reveals himself, only that revelation of himself can transform any of us into a true worshiper of God. We're picking up in chapter 28 tonight, beginning in verse 10, as you saw in the first slide. That's where we begin the, the story of Jacob's dream. Let, let's read the, the beginning of the story here of Jacob's dream, verse 10 of chapter 28. Then Jacob departed from Bethsheba and went, through, and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there, because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants." Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. The impression we have here is Jacob set off as soon as his father told him to go. Remember, Rebekah went to his father and said, you need to send Jacob away to find a different wife, not like these wives that Esau had. But really, she knew Jacob had to leave so Esau wouldn't kill him. And apparently, Jacob leaves immediately. And, and now we, we pick up on that. He departs. Remember, Esau took a third wife for himself. He took a wife from, from Ishmael's family, Ishmael's daughter. But, but that's just a parenthetical note that, that's put in here. This is happening now, verse 10, is happening right on the heels of, of Jacob being told to leave. And he takes away, so the, the dream that we just read, it, it probably occurred on that first night that Jacob was away from his family. Let's look closer at the text. Let, let's consider, to begin with, the, the dream setting. What is the setting that, that Moses gives us here as he records this? We, we start out with a couple place names there in verse 10. We have Beersheba and Haran. Those names tell us that, that Jacob's leaving not only his family, but he's leaving his land as well. We, we know, of course, Paddan Aram, where Rebekah's brother lives, Laban, where he lives. That, that's outside the promised land. It's far to the north. 
But Moses here, by, by including that he's going towards Haran, he, he's making sure that, that we don't lose sight of the fact that Jacob is about to leave the very land that God has promised to give to Abraham's descendants. Jacob's supposed to be inheriting the promises. He's leaving the land that's tied up with those promises. The one who's just had that handoff of the promises from his father, these promised blessings, he's leaving the land of promise. Has he really received the promises? Does this deceitful behavior that he engaged in, the, the way that he, he stole the promise uh, blessing, if you will, does that deceit void his right to the promises? Has he really received the promises or not? Is, is this exodus from the land evidence that, that they're not really Jacob's? Those are the types of questions that, that we should be asking ourselves here as Jacob is bedding down for the night. Moses is planting those thoughts in our minds with the short description there in verse 10. Look carefully at verse 11. Moses begins this part of a narrative really in a, a casual-sounding way. Jacob arrives at, at some place where he's going to spend the night because the sun had set. When, when I read that, that reminds me of a lot of trips that Grace and I have taken along the years. When we're traveling to our family in North Dakota, usually it's been a two-day affair. where We try not to do the whole trip in one day, but we don't plan where we're going to stop. We just start driving, and when it's time to stop, we stop. We know along the interstate there's a lot of places to, to lay down. I guess as, if all you need is a rock for a bed, Jacob has no worries either to, to find places to lay down. He's just traveling, and it's time to stop. On the surface, it sounds as if Jacob is simply stopping at some random place along the route. Yet, yet notice that the word place, it shows up three times in verse 11. Plus, if we were to look in the original Hebrew, there's a definite article before the word place. Jacob came to the place. He took one of the stones from the place. He lay down in the place. We're being given some clues here that, that there might be something important about this place, that, that an important events could happen here. And something important does happen, doesn't it? During the night, Jacob has a dream, a, a rather famous dream from our perspective, and we, we all know of the dream of Jacob's ladder. Of course, despite the song that, that we may be familiar with, we are not the ones who are climbing Jacob's ladder. We can sing that song, but that's not what's happening here at all. And in fact, we really can't say with any confidence that Jacob even saw a ladder. The, the, the word they used, whatever the angels are going up and down on, is used only this one place in the Bible. Uh, it's a word we don't know exactly what it means, but something that, that conveys the angels back and forth. It, it connects heaven and earth. Uh, with T's and Grace on way here, I guess Jacob didn't recognize what escalator was, so he didn't have a word for it. We don't know what this word means. We do know that it connects heaven and earth, so translators envision something like a ladder or a stairway. What we know is that Moses wants to grab our attention right at this point. If Jacob sees this ladder, if you will, the casual manner that, that Moses began this story saying he stopped at some place because the sun came down is shattered now with the word behold. Three times 
In rapid succession, there's three descriptive phrases given that begin with the word behold. Behold a ladder. Behold the angels of God. Behold the Lord. Moses is grabbing our attention, focusing us in on Jacob's dream. I've already said we, we don't know exactly what the ladder is. The, the most that we can say is that Jacob in his dream here, he saw this connector between heaven and earth. This ladder, if you will, it, it grants access between heaven and earth. And that's the first thing that Jacob saw. But his attention, as is drawn to it, immediately he sees something else that grabs his attention. He sees angels going up and down, traveling between earth and heaven. Clearly, this does suggest the presence of angels in both places. There's angels residing in heaven, there's angels on earth, and they're going back and forth doing some duties of some kind. Yet nothing in their appearance is described. Nothing in their function is described. Instead, Jacob's gaze as he sees these angels, it travels up this ladder, and his attention is captivated by the Lord who is standing there. Notice Moses here, he uses the covenantal name for God. The covenantal name Yahweh. Later when, when Jacob down the road will, will tell his future son Joseph about this experience. And when Jacob reveals it later on when he relays this he says it was God Almighty at the top of the, the ladder. Of course we know Yahweh the God of Israel is God Almighty. There's one true God and that is Israel's God. So there's no surprise in the interchanging of the names between Yahweh and God Almighty, but it is significant. The covenant God of Israel is the Almighty God of the universe. And that is the focus of his dream. God really is the focal point. In the original language, each clause that, that follows one of those three beholds is shorter than one before. That, that's a literary device that serves to speed us along to the focal point of the narrative. The Lord is at the center of the vision. The Lord is what grabs his attention. Having observed the dream setting that, that focuses our attention here on the Lord, let's think about the content. The content. The words that God says begins there in verse 13, and, and they take a form of, of a covenant as, as God specifically now extends the, the promises that he had personally made to Abraham and then the promises that God had personally made to Isaac, God now extends to Jacob. And in fact, notice how God identifies himself. I am the Lord, Yahweh there, the covenantal name. I am Yahweh, the God of your father. Who? What, what does the text say? I'm the, the God of, the father, of your father, who? Abraham. Who's Jacob's physical father? Isaac is his physical father. Isaac is mentioned there, I am the God of Isaac. But God calls Abraham Jacob's father. That, that wording that, that God uses punctuates the idea that the covenant that God made with Abraham is now continuing to Jacob. It's being passed along. Now, I, I trust because we've looked at this covenant several times over the, the months here and I guess now it's into years as we go all the way back to when we looked at the life of Abraham three years ago. We've seen this covenant many times, so I trust you remember there's several components involved in, in the promises that God gave to Abraham. The first time we ran into them was chapter 12. 
But they've shown up many times after that. And here they show up again. But what I want you to notice is which component is mentioned first. Uh, of all the things that are wrapped up in the promises that God has given, he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. And what component is mentioned first? Where are the next two words? The land. The land. The land promise. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Think about it. Jacob is on his way out of the land. Moses has drawn our attention to that fact. He's leaving the land of promise. That fact more than anything else could cause Jacob to doubt the continuity of, of the promises. So the very first thing that God emphasizes in, in the verses here is the land. It doesn't matter that Jacob's leaving. The land is a sure thing. It is his. The other thing that is significant in the first component is the land is promised to Jacob and, and who else? His descendants. Remember that the stated reason, we, we know oftentimes there's stated reason and there's real reasons. The stated reason that Jacob is, is leaving is so they can find a wife. We know the, the real reason is so they doesn't get killed. That kind of puts a damper on finding a wife if your brother murders you. So he, he's leaving to find a wife. He, he's currently unmarried. Well, implicit in the promise here is an encouragement to Jacob that the efforts to find a wife will undoubtedly be successful because he'll have descendants. In fact, his descendants will be like the dust of the earth. That, that's a familiar idea of the promises. But for the first time, that idea is expanded when God says that these descendants, they're like the dust of the earth, they will spread out. They will go to the west, to, to the east, to the north, to the south, the numerous descendants will fill the land. Finally, God promises that he will be with Jacob. It doesn't matter where Jacob goes. God will go with him. And God promises that, that going with him, he will ensure Jacob returns again. That, that clearly comes through as a point here that even though Jacob was, was deceitful in gaining the blessing, even though he has had these sinful actions, the point that God is bringing out is that his sinful actions did not, and for that matter could not, nullify God's gracious choice to give the blessings to him. Remember, God communicated his choice to Rebekah that the promises would go to Jacob before Jacob was ever born. The fact that Jacob's lived as a scoundrel this far into his life doesn't nullify God's gracious choice. Jacob cannot mess up what God intends to do. The results do not rest on Jacob. The, the results do not rely on Jacob's worthiness. The results rest on God and God's trustworthiness. God promises that, that he will not leave Jacob until he's done all that he has promised to Jacob. Now, now that does not mean that, that God will someday leave off and, and leave Jacob behind because he's completed this checklist. Okay, I've got this checklist. I gave you the covenant. Here's the things on it. you got these components. I, I'm God. I'm checking them off. Once I'm done, I'm out of here. That's not what he's saying. Then He says, I will not leave you until all has been completed. 
God is saying that he will stay with Jacob until he's fulfilled his divine commitment. And that's God's way of saying he will never leave Jacob because the promises that he has made extend beyond Jacob's life. God is with Jacob wherever he goes for the rest of his life. These are truths that we certainly need to remember. Is they should be just as much of an encouragement to us as they are to Jacob. We, we certainly do not obligate God to do things for us through our actions. Being good does not mean that God must reward us. God does not find himself ever in our debt. God is not obligated. At, at the same time, we will never restrict God's intent to do things for us through our actions. Our sin does not mean that, that God will not do what God has said he will do. God's actions toward us are, are based on the righteousness of Christ, not our own. The, God's actions toward us, his promises, they're secure because of Christ, not because of us. It's God's trustworthiness that, that determines what God will do. We, we seek to do the right things out of gratitude for what God has and is doing through Christ. We need to remember that. It's not because we think if we do right, it will give us a better reward. The reality that, that God will always be trustworthy to everything he has promised, including our eternal salvation that lies in our faith in Christ, that should encourage us when we sin, because we cannot mess up God's promises. There, we will not restrict his promises. We will not nullify his promises. So the reality of God's trustworthiness should encourage us when we sin. It should also humble us when we obey. We, through our obedience, do not put God at all into an obligation where he must do good for us. God will not leave us until he has done all that he promises us, period. What a great encouragement for us as believers. We depend on the trustworthiness of God and that alone. Everything that God has promises rests on him. Verse 15 here wraps up Jacob's dream. So now let's move on to his response. Jacob's response in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I've set up as a pillar will be God's house and all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. In Genesis twenty-six twenty-five, we saw the first evidence that Isaac became a true worshiper of God. God had faithfully blessed Isaac over and over. 
if you remember that chapter. God had blessed him with water over and over during a drought. Everywhere that his men put their shovel into the dry earth, they found water. Isaac knew of the promises of God. He had received the promises of God directly by word from God. But until verse 25 of, of Genesis 26, it did not appear that Isaac had a personal relationship with God. That verse is the first time that we saw Isaac build an altar and worship God. We're told in verse 25 of, of Genesis 26 that Isaac called on the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Jacob appears to go through a similar transformation in these verses. Similar to what his father went through. Let, let's examine them. The, the transformation begins with Jacob's recognition in verses 16 and 17. God had promised in the dream that, that he would be with Jacob. Now Jacob wakes up, apparently still nighttime, but he wakes up realizing that that promise is true. God was right here. God says, I'll be with you, and he was there in his dream. Jacob had failed to realize that the place that he laid down to sleep, that, that place where he put his head, that rock that he laid by or put his head on, God was there. He woke up astounded. Besides the way that we have it in our translations, we could translate verse 17 that he was afraid and said, how fearful is this place? Or we could translate it, he was awed and said, how awesome is this place? The, the point that I'm trying to make is Moses uses the same word twice there in verse 17. Once to describe Jacob's emotional response, he uses a word, and then once to record the exclamation that Jacob gives. The, the word that Moses uses is a word that's a mixture of terror and adoration. It, it's a relatively common word in the Old Testament. It, it's the idea of the fear of the Lord that we have. It's, it's this idea that, that is always a proper response to our meeting of the Lord. There, there should be both a, a terrifying aspect and an overwhelmingly odd aspect when we encounter God. True worship should be tinged with both. We're encountering God. That's a fearful thing. He is awesome, so far beyond us, separate from all that we are, holy in, in his absolute being. There's that fearful aspect, that odd aspect that, that falls into a rightful response to God. Jacob realizes that, that he's encountered God. What he recognizes is that the place they happen to lay down for the night where he, he decided to worship, that is a place where God could be worshipped. This is a place here where, where God interacts with his creation in a special way. Now, now to be clear, this, this does not undercut the idea that the God's omnipresence is always there. God is present everywhere. He fills the entire universe. He is everywhere present all the times. Yet, yet we understand that God chooses to manifest himself in particular ways at certain places. We can think about how the Shekinah glory of God filled the, the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem. God manifested his presence through the, the Shekinah glory in the temple showing that this was a unique place for Israel to worship. Well, Jacob recognizes that this location is one of those places where God uniquely is revealing himself. And that makes it a proper place to intentionally worship God. 
So that's what Jacob does. Look at verses 18 and 19. Jacob's worship. Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone they had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top. And he called that place Bethel. Early in the morning. That, that indicates this is the first thing that Jacob did when he woke up. As soon as the sun was beginning to light the sky, he, he does this. He takes the stone that was right there where he had gone to sleep for the night and he stood that stone up in a unique way to mark this location. Whenever you see a, a stone standing in a unique way as something that's not natural, you know it didn't happen by chance. It's amazing how we can recognize stones are not set up by chance, but yet people will argue that mankind comes into being by chance. I, I don't comprehend that. We, we see people like to stack stones along rivers to, to indicate that they were here because there's nothing natural about the stones stacking on top of each other. Well, that's what Jacob's doing here. He's taking this stone and he sets it up so that it's in an unnatural way. It's standing upright to mark this location. He marks this place as a sacred area and then he consecrates it by pouring oil on the rock. Essentially, he's making a sacrifice. He, he's demonstrating his devotion to God. He, he's consecrating the, the place as holy, a place now that's set apart for worship. Jacob also renames the place. He gave the place the name Bethel, which simply means the house of God. Remember, Moses introduced in verse 11 the place where David lay down simply is the place. It's simply the place. But now we learn that it had a previous name. Jacob actually is sleeping near a city, just outside the city or on the edge of the city. It had a previous place, but but Moses doesn't give us the name Luz, this Canaanite name that the town had. Moses had just said Jacob was somewhere, but now this place carries a name. The name of the place is Bethel, the house of God. We, we have, by the way, encountered the name Bethel for this location already in Genesis. And we first hit it back in Genesis 12, verse 18. And don't get confused by this. Our, our verses are recording... The, the place now when it received the name from Jacob. That's what we're looking at now. Back in Genesis 12, Moses was simply using the name that came later. Remember, Genesis 12 happens here. Jacob's here. Moses is way in the future, writing several hundred years later from, from that point of time. So he's just using the, the name when, back in Genesis 12 that Jacob's descendants know it by, is known by the name Bethel. Jacob gives it that name. Having worshipped God first thing in the morning, Jacob rounds out his response to the, the dream that God gave him here in, in the final verses uh, by making a vow. We have Jacob's vow. Now, we may get slightly confused by the wording of the vow, but, but Jacob vows to worship God at this place when God brings him back to the land. Jacob makes a vow that essentially says, God, if you will do all that you have promised you know, keep me safe and secure in the journey, bring me back home, then I will worship you here again and give you a tenth of all that I ha have when I come back. It's not that Jacob doubts that God is real. He's already 
recognize the Lord. The Lord is in this place. He's had this encounter. He knows God. So it's not saying, if you do these things for me, then I will acknowledge you as God. He's saying, if you do these things for me, I will worship you when I come back here. I want to know a couple things about the, this vow. One, we need to understand that this vow as a, is not intended to bribe God to do something. This is not an incentive for God to bless Jacob. Jacob is not saying, if you do this for me, then I'll give you worship. Rather, the, the vow binds Jacob. Jacob is acknowledging when God does what God has promised to do, Jacob owes God worship. He's solemnly binding himself to give God the proper worship when God does what he has promised. God, when you do what you've said, if you bring me back right here, this is where I will worship you. Part of what is proper in that worship that Jacob promises is to give God concrete action. He will do something concrete. He says he will give God a, a tithe, a tenth, a tenth of his possessions in his worship. Remember, Jacob has nothing at the moment. He's fleeing for his, his life, essentially. Yes, he probably took a few things to, for the journey, but he owns nothing. Any and everything that Jacob might bring back into the land when he returns will represent the prosperity that God has given Jacob outside the land. If this is where Jacob will worship, if this becomes the place where Jacob will worship, then this place, Jacob determines, will be where he gives his offerings of all that God blesses him with as he returns. So that's one thing to note, but also note that if we look carefully at the last half of verse 22, we'll notice something. Do you see how Jacob's words shift from referring to God in third person? He says, the Lord will be my God. If God will be with me, the Lord will be my God. This will be God's house. He refers to God in third person. And then it shifts into the second person. Jacob begins, or ends, I shouldn't probably say, addressing God directly. He finishes his vow talking to God in a personal manner. You give me. I will give to you. God has revealed himself to Jacob in the dream. Jacob awakes now with a personal relationship with God. Jacob is now a God worshiper. He's not simply a God knower. Certainly from the time he was born, he had heard of God. You can't talk about his grandfather Abraham without talking about Abraham's God. Isaac surely had talked about God. Rebecca had talked about God. He knew of God. Well, he no longer simply knows of God. Now he knows God. And that really is where our lesson for tonight comes. Remember, I gave her a lesson at the beginning this evening. Only God's revelation of himself can transform a person into a true worshiper of him. Young men, you need to know God too. Thank you. Only God's revelation of himself can transform a true worshiper, a person into a true worshiper of God. Through our text, we, we've read how God revealed himself to Jacob. And Jacob 
is transformed. He's transformed into a true worshiper. Certainly, despite the fact that he's leaving his family behind, despite the fact that he has no idea if he'll return to his family, this turned out to be a wonderful, glorious night in Jacob's life. This is an eternally life-changing night. What we need to recognize is that God continues to transform people into true worshipers through the very same process, the process of revealing himself to people. Of course, the, the content of God's revelation is now fixed. We, we have it. God's revealed all the information that, that we need of himself. He's revealed all the information of himself that he's going to until Christ returns. We're, we're not looking for dreams so that we'll have new information from God. We have the Bible. That, that contains the content. Yet, we need to recognize the Bible is different from any other book. The Bible reveals God. As we take the content of the Bible, as we read the content of the Bible, the Holy Spirit can use the words to reveal God to us. We come to know a person. We don't come to know information about a person. We come to know a person through the words of the Bible. Learning to know that person, that's what transforms us into true worshipers. Only God's revelation of himself can transform a person into a true worshiper of him. Nothing else can do that. So a couple applications come from the, this idea. One, if God's revelation alone can, can transform a person, then that is what we need to get to people who are not worshipers. We need to get God's revelation of himself to people. Now, we do that through several methods, don't we? we? We verbally share with people what God has revealed in Scripture. That is sharing God's revelation of himself when we tell people about Jesus Christ, when we tell people what God has said. We can sit down and we can study God's Word with people. That brings an encounter about where they come to know God's Word. We, we can give copies of God's revelation in, in the form of verses that we can share with people our full Bibles. We can invite people to listen to preaching and and have them hear the word of God expounded. We can do lots of things. But we must ensure that all the things that we do are, are focused on getting God's revelation of himself to people. I'm talking about evangelism. Our goal is not to attract people with the things that they like or that they want. Our goal is to create encounters between people and God. And we do that through his revelation alone. That is the only thing that can convert a person from a non-worshipper to a God-worshipper. That's why we must commit ourselves to, to living like Paul when he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, 2 that he determined no nothing among, in this case, the Corinthians, nothing there except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We need the singleness of, of focus because it's only God's revelation that can transform a person into a true worshiper. We need to focus ourselves around bringing counters between people and God's revelation of himself because that's where they will meet God. So that's one application. A second application is more personal. I'm sure that all of us go through times when, when our worship feels dry. I... I Maybe alone in that, but I don't think so. I, I think we go through times where our worship feels dry. We, we go through the motions of, of worship, but, 
but the life and the energy is missing. Often, the solution that is proposed to address this common problem is to do something to, to spice up the worship event, change the music, reorder the service, create energy through some new things, do something to make it exciting. What our passage tonight should remind us is the only thing that can transform our worship is God's revelation of himself. Nothing else can do it. We need more of God's revelation if our worship feels dry. We need to spend more time with God through his word. Likely our, our worship is dry because our time with God is lacking. Our, our lives are spent primarily lacking the, the ingredient that God says will transform our worship. We don't spend time with God's revelation of himself. Our time is so small that it's pushed out by all the other things that crowd in. If, if your worship feels lifeless, add times of Bible reading and, and prayer to your Saturday night schedule. Get up early on Sunday morning and spend more time reading your Bible and praying before you come to worship and see what happens. Only God's revelation of himself can transform a person into a true worshiper of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the evening you've given us. We thank you for the time we've been in, able to spend in your word. We thank you for the glorious event that we see, the transforming work of you in Jacob's life. And Father, we pray that you will do a similar transformation in all of us. If there's anyone here this evening that is listening that is not a worshiper of you, I pray, Father, that tonight you would give them a, a personal encounter of yourself, that they might be transformed by a revelation of you that comes as your spirit takes your word and applies it in a quickening fashion to their life. Father, grant spiritual life to those who may need it. Father, for the rest of us, may we rejoice that we've had the privilege of encountering you through your revelation this evening. And may you energize us to be true, joy-filled worshipers of you. Pray this in the name of our Savior, the one who enables us to be worshipers. Amen.